Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 28th of October 2020. It is 11 minutes past one. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Apologies, a few technical uh, difficulties there, which we've recovered from. So let's get on with uh, the developing situation in UK. Yes, yeah, so, so the Chuckle Brothers are back at it again. They're uh, calling for a national lockdown by Christmas. Uh, so Patrick Vallance pushing the Prime Minister according to various reports. Uh, Sage has said that they believe all of England will have to be in tier three by the middle of December. Uh, and uh, they're saying that uh, any that the daily deaths are going to hit 500 within weeks uh, with the UK. Uh, well, they're now talking about a lampshade wave, Brian. Well, not a second wave, not a first wave, not a third wave, a lampshade wave. This is it gets better. So uh, MPs also putting pressure for actually how to get out of lockdown, not for increasing. So uh, Boris Johnson stuck between these two, uh, Chuckle Brothers and the MPs from the local area. So uh, let's have a look at the Chuckle Brothers pro projection here. Um, so there are the deaths. Um, so far this year, a bit compressed, uh, but this uh, line that we're putting on screen at the moment is showing where we are uh, presently. Uh, obviously, that first peak, uh, as we've reported before, lockdown deaths, uh, and this is the uh, the lampshade wave that they're talking about. So everything underneath the red line uh, is a new batch of lockdown deaths that they're preparing for at the moment. Uh, and we'll explain why we say that in a second. Now, just to put this in a little bit of uh, perspective, um, we'll show this graph again, brought up to date, the excess mortality graph. Uh, this is uh, all-cause mortality from the beginning of the year. Uh, the red line is uh, the, um, this year's results. Uh, the orange line is the five-year average. Uh, and as you can see, uh, lockdown began there, the first lockdown, uh, and we ended up with a bunch of lockdown deaths. Um, but as we mentioned in the last couple of programs, uh, what we're seeing since then is normal mortality, no pandemic. Uh, but is that the case? Well, if we look uh, at today's, this week's results, we see a little uptick uh, of for this year, for this past week. Uh, the, the, this is for week 42, um, as opposed to the, uh, the five-year average. So what is going on here? What are we actually seeing? Um, well, it comes back to the place of death uh, statistics again and we made the point uh, last week that if you look at the people that are dying in hospitals it's well below the five-year average in care homes below the five-year average uh, but in homes in private homes it's well above the five-year average and that's where the excess mortality is coming uh, and therefore that's people dying in their homes they're not going to hospital they're not getting the support they need now that's for week 41 uh, but the most recent statistics for week 42. So have they changed at all? Well, let's have a look. Here we go. And what we start starting to see now is excess mortality appearing in care homes once again, as well as in private homes, excess mortality uh, above, uh, you know, it has extended further. So still in hospital uh, below the five-year average at, in private homes, well above the five-year average. Care homes were starting to see it coming above the five-year average and in other locations uh, it's on uh, or around the average. So that's the situation and this is what's being used to justify calls for further lockdown and claims of uh, whatever they're calling it. Uh, what was it they were calling it? A lampshade wave. Um, but uh, let's have a look at this. Um, this is uh, Leeds teaching hospitals because they're saying, uh, well, they're saying this. Uh, they're saying today we have three, 263 patients on our beds who've tested positive for COVID-19, including 22 in intensive care. This means we have more COVID-19 patients in our hospitals now than at the peak of the pandemic in mid-April. So that's what they're cl uh, claiming. Now, just to put this into perspective, uh, the uh, Leeds teaching hospitals have 2,500 inpatient beds uh, and 23 ICU beds. Um, so their ICU is pretty full, uh, but the, the number of people within the hospital with COVID-19 uh, is what about 10% of the number of inpatient beds at the moment and I want to clarify that of course what they're saying is people that have tested positive that doesn't mean that they have COVID-19 COVID as, a, as, a, yeah. as an actual disease um, so uh, they go on to say this uh, on Tuesday last week there were 148 
patients who tested positive for COVID, which demonstrates how quickly the virus is spreading. Uh, not only is the number of COVID cases increasing, but also uh, so is the rate of increase. We're standing down some planned operations due to current pressures, which means that some patients will have their treatment postponed. Uh, only essential operations are going ahead in most cases. So already we're starting to see the health service shut down as we did in April. Um, and uh, well, that of course is gonna create excess mortality, but this will not be excess mortality from COVID-19. It will be excess mortality from the withdrawal of normal health services from the population. Um, and so uh, what's the BBC saying about this? Uh, COVID, how busy are hospitals uh, as the second wave rolls in? And the BBC says this, but hospitals are probably far from full uh, what we can't say, because up-to-date figures are not being published by NHS bosses, is exactly how full hospitals actually are. In recent years, hospitals have had about 90% of beds occupied at any one time. Uh, and so this is a really important point, Brian, uh, because, of course, it's really hard to get to the bottom of the statistics because the statistics, some statistics are published, other statistics aren't published. From year to year, the publication of statistics, the, the, the rules under which they've been published has changed. So it's very hard to compare apples with apples. It's practically impossible, in fact. Uh, and that admission from the BBC is absolutely key uh, because, of course, we can't find out exactly what the load is on hospitals, right. except from through a press release or two from a, from a PR uh, department. Right. So even the BBC that initially was pumping out the government lies and spin over the... COVID data is now getting caught up in the lies and spin because even it doesn't know what's going on. So it can't even put out a line. Oh, well, I, I think... well, well, look, the line they were putting out in that article in general was very much that the hospitals are under stress and we've got to all be very fearful and so on. Uh, but, but... but the subheadline there is, but hospitals are probably far from full. Yes. So we've got We've got cognitive dissonance appearing in the BBC. This is a psychological attack on the nation to confuse. I think they reckon that we're going to need all of next year or they will need all of next year to completely scramble the minds of the public so that we don't know whether we're coming and going. Um, what are they doing while this is going on? They are killing principally elderly people in their tens of thousands. This, this is a government that is now involved in genocide, in my opinion. Well, let's just have a look at how far the propaganda has gone. Uh, because here is, of course, what well, many people will have seen the advertisements that are on uh, the TV about, uh, you know, getting your flu jab. But this is a typical graphic from the NHS. The flu kills. The flu kills thousands every year. The flu vaccine is the best protection for you and those around you. Just get your free flu jab. Ask your pharmacist or GP if you're eligible. Uh, flu helps. Flu vaccine helps us help you, apparently. Uh, but the flu kills. This is the important thing. But does it? Because not according to the Office for National Statistics, uh, there were more deaths due to COVID-19 between January and August 2020 than influenza or pneumonia, they said uh, in their most recent release on deaths. Number of deaths due to influenza, pneumonia or COVID-19 by sex, England and Wales, occurring between 1st of January, 31st of August 2020 and registered by 5th of September 2020. Now, of course, this doesn't include uh, the, uh, the, the autumn of 2019, and, and coming into the winter of 2019, but the, the peak of the flu season is January and February. So you would expect flu deaths in January. But look, there's the, there's the influenza column and there's nothing in it. Yeah. Where have they all gone? This is very, very strange. Perhaps we could bring uh, Alex in here for a bit of comment on that. Alex, is it us or is this uh, uh, deceit by the government becoming a little bit too obvious? Well, it's interesting, Brian, that Lord Sumption, the retired uh, Supreme Court Justice, has said that even the French and German governments were more honest with their people about the ramifications of SARS-CoV-2 than the British government has been. And that's saying something. Uh, I think it's also uh, worth noting that we're not the only people pointing to the apparent dwindling of influenza deaths this year. Our appearance, that's David Scott and me with John Cullen, was one of the first to point this out. But the Daily Mail has caught up with the UK column, not for the first time. Uh, foreign observers, I think, are starting to notice that there's something particularly massaged about Britain and America's presentation of statistics. 
Um, okay, well, look, let's uh, let's go on with this uh, because that's the from the Office for National T Statistics. Now we've got to remember uh, that uh, a few weeks ago. Public Health England pushed this out, Weekly Coronavirus Disease 2019 Surveillance Report. They were pushing these out. This one was for week 40. Um, and uh, the text in this uh, says this, this will be the last COVID-19 surveillance report as of the 8th of October 2020. The information in this report will be published as a combined weekly flu and COVID-19 surveillance report on gov.uk. Right. So now it, they have to combine the two reports because apparently flu has disappeared completely. Well, and it's not just in the UK, because look, here is the World Health Organization. And this is uh, their influenza laboratory surveillance information by the Global Influenza, influenza Surveillance and Response System. And I want to thank the uh, UK column viewer that sent us this through, or that gave me the link to this. Uh, these are the global circulation of influenza viruses. And influenza seems to have disappeared globally including countries that are in the southern hemisphere and are in the winter, uh, went through the winter uh, in mid-year, uh, from week 16. Uh, no influenza left on the planet, Brian. It's, this has got to be a success. <laughs> well, it's remarkable. This, this, is, uh, this is magic. This is a mind spell here because, of course, this can't possibly be true. But what it's suggesting to me is that the only... Um, the only viruses that are going to be allowed to appear are the ones that are clearly controlled by the government, controlled in the, in the information they put out and controlled in what effect it has on the population by lockdown or no lockdown. So influenza is gone. Uh, COVID-19 is the only thing that exists anymore. And of course, the, 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 the measurement of, of figures on this cases, no positive test doesn't make a case. If we get to the antibodies uh, uh, segment at the end of the program, uh, we'll explain why that's the case. But anyway, let's let's move on with this, uh, Alex. Uh, and uh, this is Wales lockdown, and of course, uh, uh, the police deciding to break up a church. This is on the orders of Mark Drakeford, who is the Labour Party. Uh, what should we say, uh, chairman of the Welsh executive would be one, perhaps one of his best titles, though he, he now calls himself Welsh First Minister. And he, he has given uh, the Welsh police forces, uh, through what are now called Welsh laws all of a sudden, the power to go in and march into a British church, something that's with often the, uh, the stuff of science fiction by British and American churchgoers. They imagined that persecution of this kind common in communist countries would come to Britain or America. It now has. So you have coppers marching in and, and even being flippant enough to say sorry to spoil the party uh, while a worship service is in progress. The only way I think I would fault the Christians who were taken by surprise in this situation is that rather than just filming and saying we respect the police, you know you're not behaving very nicely, uh, is for them to say, as many have before them, you'll be dragging us out. Uh, I know that this does provoke a risk of horrible things like tasers being used as part of the punishment, but if people wish to make more of a point than they already are about we don't agree with this, then go limp, offer no resistance and let yourselves be carried out is my advice. And um, I'll just add, um, Alex, to that, just look at the state of that so-called policeman. Um, some of our viewers have already picked up on this. What a disgraceful individual, scruffy, hands in pockets. Uh, that is not a police constable. That's, that is just, well, I don't know quite well, how to the, describe it. But yeah, where's appalling. the respect for the job? Where's the respect for the well, position? There's no respect for the uniform to start off, so there's no respect for the job. There's no respect for the member of the public who's supposed to be policing. So this is all part of the deliberate destruction of standards in the police so that you get low-grade individuals, such as that particular one, who are going to do the dirty work of the in this case, the Welsh government. Um, but Alex, it's not just uh, in Wales. Here, the Iona Institute is reporting that the Republic of Ireland has got some new statutory uh, instruments on the books, uh, section, I think it's 58 or so of which, I've got the details here on another uh, device, says that clergy, uh, it's, it's statutory instrument 448 of 2020, article eight of these regulations, so this is another one that has not been not gone through the doyle properly, just like in other jurisdictions, parliamentary scrutiny is gone. Uh, this article prevents, ver prevent, prohibits various events broadly defined. It includes religious services with an exception for funerals. Contravention of the prohibition is an offence. 
and the relevant part of the regulations is a penal, which means criminal law provision, allowing for criminal penalties to be imposed on the organizer of an event, such as a priest celebrating mass or any other preacher in any other religious denomination. Uh, so again, to, to jump straight to solutions, it's laity-led services, I would suggest. Uh, things that appear spontaneous get-togethers with no obvious leader is probably the way to go, while Wales and Ireland, you know, the, the, the basis of the Celtic church that evangelized Europe, become Europe's only countries to ban church services. Um, now that uh, article discusses the National Public Health Emergency Team. And look what we have there, Brian. We have a behavioural change subgroup of the NPHET. These are the cabal of 20 or so people in Dublin that are running Ireland. Uh, they only seem to have come into being last year, just in time for COVID, one of those conveniences uh, and coincidence of timing. And look, they have a behavioural change team. I wonder whether Brian has any comments on where they got that idea from. Well, before Brian uh, gives that, I'm just wondering, is that is that the Irish equivalent to the Joint Biosecurity Centre then? It probably is, because the way Ireland has gone is that most of the fascism that's come in recently has gone into a body called the HSE, the Health and Safety Executive, uh, a, a very telling noun, that executive, who are the uh, the parent body of TUSLA, the new child uh, protection body, with many egregious offences to their names, and uh, also housed under them are all the biohazard assessments and the behavioural change. So uh, interesting, isn't it, Brian? I wonder to what extent uh, Ireland, with its republican and nationalist tradition, has actually left uh, United Kingdom cultural governance at this point. Well, I don't think they've left at all. And uh, the fact that we're now seeing the mirror of the, the application of political applied behavioural psychology is another clue um, that they're I've got to say, not independent at all. They're under control. But let's remember that the, the behavioural insights team that was spawned alongside the cabinet office of the British government uh, boasted only a couple of uh, years ago that it was able to sell its malicious political applied behavioural psychology. It was so good and so effective. And America and Australia were two of the immediate buyers of that technology and of course what do we see happening particularly in Australia also to some extent New Zealand but we've got a particularly vicious lockdown mm -hmm. this is a psychological attack on the country on the minds of the public and uh, this technology has been exported overseas um, so let's look at another EU country, Alex, and, and the Netherlands. And the headline on uh, DutchNews.nl is Senate votes in favour of coronavirus law clearing the way for face masks. The reason why the Netherlands, where I'm sitting, is one of the last continental countries not to impose face masks everywhere, and it's only belatedly putting it in as, as uh, urgent guidance, not even law, is because they actually have quite a libertarian and uh, constitutionalist stance in their Supreme Court, and even some of their parliamentarians. The Netherlands is one of those countries that still has an old-fashioned Senate of indirect appointees from the provincial assemblies, like the US Senate before the 1930s. So they are equivalent to lords uh, in the British sense, in that they consider the long-term and experience rather than electability. And the Dutch Senate has finally put in some amendments, well, really scrapped parts of this law. But the driving force behind it is a minister called Hugo de Jonge of the uh, rather ironically named Christian Democrat Party. And Mr. de Jonge has said, well, since we've been ruling by emergency ministerial decree since the start of COVID crisis in March, why don't we tidy it all into a bill that can actually go through both houses of parliament to make uh, give it the semblance of proper legislation agreed between uh, parliament and uh, government? And the final hurdle to that's been cleared. So we probably will see Belgian, French, German style total lockdowns uh, imposed here. But look, what else has Mr. De Jonge been up to? Uh, in his current position, with his current ministry, he is also pushing through forward this uh, is in his health portfolio, active termination of life for younger children following Belgium. Uh, but in the Dutch sense, uh, as with the first round of euthanasia for adults, uh, the very narrow filter that's applied first is there has to be unbearable suffering with no prospect of relief. Uh, but of course, in the case of adult euthanasia, this has now been widened to euthanasia by choice, uh, which even has a term in Dutch. The, uh, the Marxist parties push this idea of voltoid leven, meaning I feel I've had enough of a life. Uh, can I now be uh, euthanized? So that will inevitably, I'm afraid, spread to euthanasia on children as well. Uh, Mr. de Jonge, by the way, in his previous portfolio was the man who brought Scottish government named person policy to Dutch councils in, uh, to enable the, uh, the lifting of children from families more easily. Um, okay, now here we've got uh, an article from Simon Eckhart. Now, if I'm right, uh, he's asking when COVID actually started. 
If people want to look up Samuel Eckert, uh, this, this German headline, Wie eine einzige Fehlinterpretation, there's an English translation available uh, from various places. Uh, if you look for Corona hyphen news, you'll find it. I think a telegram channel of that name is one of the places to look. Uh, but what's actually, sorry, Corona Fakten with a K in it, the German spelling, one word. Uh, but what's going on here is that uh, quite a few German newspapers and uh, media outlets have begun to look at the timing and uh, the crucial dates are the day before New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve itself and New Year's Day from 2019 to 2020. The timing is very suspicious. Uh, the key person here is uh, Professor Drosten. Well, Professor is a question mark in him, but we'll explain in a moment. But shall we say Mr. Drosten of La Charité Institute in Berlin, one of the three men named, uh, by the way, in the German case that I covered last time as, as a man who's, who's specifically being targeted because he wrote the uh, PCR uh, test parameters. Uh, it's a computer-based test. Well, here's the crucial timing question. Uh, the uh, screenshotted uh, WhatsApp conversation uh, or equivalent within China, um, which uh, raised the alarm bells on the 30th of December by ophthalmologist Li Wenliang. Well, that's the date of that one, the 30th of December. Uh, he, he said it was a new kind of SARS that there were seven cases of in his hospital. The next day is New Year's Eve, one of the few times of year when both China and the West have holidays together, which makes it even more questionable. Uh, new Year's Eve is when the Peking government sends an intervention force to go and look for reagents, basically uh, material from infected patients to enable a test. And on New Year's Day, which uh, very much in Germany, as in other European countries, is a public holiday, Professor Drosten is develop developing a PCR test before, as this German uh, site reports, before it could even have been clarified whether the reports from China about a new SARS were true and proven, and before the Chinese virologists had made their results available to the public. Now, if we zoom in on Mr. Drosten, he has the same problem as many German high-ups, which is that he has required a PhD to get further. Even politicians like to be imposing in Germany by getting a doctorate. But several, including uh, Merkel and some in her cabinet, have had their academic qualifications scrutinized this way. Happens a bit in America as well, less so in Britain. But what we see here is Verdacht erhärtet Drosten kein richtiger Doktor. Uh, it's been found out by, uh, I forget which uh, is on screen now, but a mainstream German uh, uh, channel and a Swiss uh, channels covered it too, that Drosten cannot produce evidence of his doctorate. Uh, it seems that in summer 2020, when he was a world celebrity because of his PCR test, uh, Drosten suddenly found his PhD um, thesis re-emerge or come out of hibernation in a Frankfurt medical faculty after 17 years of hibernation or being missing. That was the Goethe University medical faculty. So this is another man, I think, in, there's many of them in Germany, uh, who has been standing on a, a reputation he doesn't have. And he's one of the three who in the uh, Fumich case that we covered last time uh, is, is blamed for putting the whole world into an irrecoverable economic flat spin. Uh, but the key point here, Alex, that the, that the PCR, his, his uh, PCR test design uh, appeared within a day of uh, the claim that there was a new a novel coronavirus. Yes, I mean, there's dedication to duty, Mike, but I don't know about you, uh, but if, if you got news on New Year's Eve that something earth shattering was happening in your profession or any of the listeners can imagine this as well, would you spend New Year's Day, bearing in mind that in Germany it's a very family, family oriented day with, you know, more or less obligatory visits to relatives, would you spend New Year's Day, the morning thereof, in fact, tinkering in your study to produce something which was then going to be the world breaking research in that area with no material yet available? Um, <laughs> seems pretty unlikely is the simple answer to that one, I think. Yes. OK, well, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Now, uh, we're going to put out an, uh, an appeal on behalf of uh, David Ellis. Um, David is um, particularly upset at the effectively the cancellation of Remembrance Day and uh, gatherings at the Cenotaph. And he's asking for particularly any veterans out there that have been paying attention to his sequence of interviews with um, former um, veterans, former special forces um, have been the uh, most recent ones that he's done. But if you're a veteran, you're concerned of what the government's actually doing around uh, the Cenotaph and Remembrance Day and other matters in the country, please contact David Ellis. And uh, there's a special... Um, email address there that you can use to do that which is simply david ellis report as all one word david ellis report at uk column 
www.ghostbusiness.org. So please get in touch. We are interested in the feedback and particularly interested in getting more contact uh, with veterans in UK. Um, and uh, well, only a few days now. What is it? Three days until uh, alternative it's view? Three days, four hours and 23 minutes, Mike. And e I can excellent. tell you that because if you go to the AV11 um, website, you can see the countdown to AV11.1. And I'll just give a heads up that there's a special taster being given by Ian Crane so that if you haven't uh, logged in or joined one of the AV streamed events before, you can actually uh, just join on Saturday evening for a sp uh, special reduced charge and uh, see what you think. Um, but uh, all the details of speakers are on the AV11 website. And we're very pleased to announce that David Devine is going to join us again uh, because uh, people have been so uh, impressed and supportive of his previous talks. But the rest of the speakers are listed there. Now, we'll just give you um, a UK column exclusive, really. Uh, we do this pretty quickly, but a little while ago, amongst other places, the National Law Review started talking about um, contracts and the fact that new UK legislation will prevent suppliers from terminating contracts due to a customer becoming insolvent. So this is going back to May the 29th, 2020. Just give you a bit more detail on this. Um, so the background was this, that most contracts for the supply of goods and services contain a termination clause, also known as an ipso facto clause, which on the occurrence of an insolvency related event either automatically terminates the contract or entitles the supplier to terminate the contract. Now, what's happening is, this is the key sentence, however, the successful turnaround of a distressed business often requires continued cooperation from its suppliers, just as much as it requires the support of its customers. As a result, the government is seeking to prevent these termination clauses from taking effect in order to, quote, help companies trade through a restructuring or insolvency procedure, maximizing the opportunities for rescue of the company or the sale of its business as a going concern. Now, why are we suddenly interested with that article back from uh, May? Well, we got a little bit of a tip off and this is a UK column exclusive that the UK government has issued a contract for the rapid construction of six high tech insolvency centres with three to be constructed before Christmas. We understand that, quote, money is no object and it's a get them up at any cost, unquote. And our source added, why is the government in such a hurry to construct insolvency centres? Because they will apparently be dealing with insolvency as a result of COVID-19 loans. So we just put a label on that, but it looks like the government is planning to foreclose on COVID-19 business loans. And that would be a grab um, of vulnerable business businesses. So something very, very dirty and devious going on in the business uh, on the business side of life all around those COVID loans that we warned about many, many months ago. Uh, now, Alex, uh, many people talking about uh, the recent interview by uh, Lord Sumption. Um, and uh, well, we're going to go run through this a little bit. Uh, the title of it was Government by Decree, COVID-19 and the Constitution. Now, Lord Sumption, a former uh, Supreme Court Justice, um, it was a pretty impressive uh, interview and it's available on the uh, Cambridge Private Law YouTube channel. He's speaking, in fact, to Cambridge University's law faculty in some uh, form, and he had hoped to come to Cambridge in person, but he's delivering it by Zoom from Milan instead. And uh, there's so many purple passages that really people need to go to the uh, video itself. Uh, there's a couple of minutes of dead time and then a couple of minutes of polite introduction. But if people skip to about five minutes in, roughly, they'll find him starting to speak. But here we've picked out some of the highlights. Absolutely do go and listen to the whole thing. So Lord Sumption, as I mentioned, is a former Supreme Court justice and a very fine historian of medieval English constitution as well. He says the British public has not even begun to understand the seriousness of what's happening in our country. This is a remark at the end of the talk. Many, perhaps most of them, don't care 
and won't care until he's, it's too late. He's talking about the UK column uh, syndrome that we often have of trying not to feel superior to others, even as we wonder why it is that many of our nearest and dearest say, oh, uh, it'll be all right. Uh, or in the uh, Australian and New Zealand phrase, she'll be right, she'll come good. That attitude is very widespread in the population and it makes Lord Sumption despair. There's not a hint of arrogance or superiority in his speech, though. Uh, what else does he go on to say? He says that most curtailments of liberty this year were achieved by a combination of government advice and pressure from government regulators. Uh, in the, the, the legal definitions at the beginning, people can get lost at sea, but that's a key point of his. He says that government advice and, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, guidance uh, was, was par far too much of what was going on here. Uh, government regulators, you know, at, at three, three removes from the, the crown, were putting the fine touches on things and telling medical and dental workers what they could and couldn't do. He says that powers were routinely enlarged by tendentious and misleading guidance generally announced at press conferences. Now we see more of why the daily press conferences were absolutely insisted upon, with Nicola Sturgeon recently fighting a rearguard action to order the Scottish mainstream media to cover her live. He says that police routinely exceeded even the vast powers that they had received, and he adds that ministers do not readily, readily surrender coercive powers once the need for them has passed. And staying on the theme of, his, of the police, he adds that after he uh, came out against Derbyshire police for their awful uh, prominent campaign earlier in the year telling people that they would be filmed by drone cam if they went for a walk and warning people that the their favorite lagoon had been dyed a horrible color to stop them walking there he says that after he criticized derbyshire police he got criticism back he says derbyshire police sent me a letter effectively saying they had to do it that they could do as they saw fit in a crisis um then alex, just, sorry alex yeah. just before you go on i just want to i just want to uh comment on this a little bit because this we've seen this type of attitude not just from the police but also from local authorities i think it was staffordshire local authority claiming that they had the right to do anything uh, they weren't even claim, claiming it as a as, as in a crisis but this is a very key constitutional principle here uh, i think it's often expressed uh, by us anyway uh, in uh, a court case that took place in the 18th century antic versus carrington which said quite clearly that uh, you know, us as individuals have the right to do anything except where it's prohibited by law, but that bodies, local authorities, the police actually have the right to do nothing except where it's permitted by law. So, that, so there's actually a requirement for permission to be given for them to take any particular action. And so what Derbyshire police that are, were expressing in that letter to him was an absolute breach of constitutional law. Yes, the root of it, even if we will grant that there's goodwill there and ignorance in the police rather than uh, a desire for tyranny, uh, they have confused the position of you can't unless with you may unless, uh, which is you know very explicit in the US Constitution. The English Constitution does point this out as well, and later the British Constitution uh, goes into detail on that. Lord, Lord Sumption keeps talking about our constitutional traditions. We would be stronger than him on that uh, in saying that many of them are written requirements, both before and after the Act of Union. But yes, the key word you're looking out for is powers. Powers uh, should make a, ba a bell ring in people's heads because that means somebody who has sovereignty in some form has delegated to someone else. For example, we delegate things to the Crown. The Crown delegates things to Parliament. Parliament delegates things to constabularies, even though the constabularies are really only us in uniform. And so powers and rights are totally opposite uh, concepts. Rights are, of course, I can because there's nothing against it. And powers are, you may if. Uh, but police are now claiming powers that are basically superpowers. So then uh, Lord Sumption goes into this a bit more about the, the role of Parliament in this. We'll t talk about this a lot more in extra time for our subscribers. It's not fair to give all, I think, of the uh, the fine points uh, to, to everyone when there's loyal subscribers who are helping us to do this research. But Lord Sumption says that parliamentary scrutiny, of course, itself is not enough unless Parliament itself is willing to live up to its high constitutional calling. Unfortunately, he adds, there's very little evidence that it is willing to vote down unconvincing measures. Now, many of our viewers would be screaming uh, at the screen now for me to mention certain things, uh, but two in particular, whipped parties and royal assent. 
the two uh, lies and anti-constitutional measures of the early 19th century. They were well in place by Queen Victoria's middle years of her reign. And these together mean that you, you cannot fulfill a high constitutional calling. You cannot uh, discharge a fiduciary duty to your electorate uh, as a member of parliament because your orders are coming from banks and whips instead. So he won't go quite that far. But if you look at the triad of government, what's going on here is in many cases, such as when the US Constitution was written, legislatures were the domineering branch of governments and judges and parliaments ganged up, sorry, sorry judges and executives ganged up against legislatures to stop the, uh, a legislature saying everyone will pay 100% tax to the government. Now things have swapped round and the judiciary is saying, come on parliament, play your role so that we're not bullied around by the executive. So very fundamental changes have happened with modern life, media and technology and the economy that we now have, that the danger is not principally anymore from the executive, but from an overmighty legislature or a legislature that's gone to sleep. And this is something that's an, an, an executive that uh, is, 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 is got the legislature in its pocket. Uh, these are things that have been warned on warned of from Lord Pitt's days in the 18th century onwards. And it's crucial people start seeing that we don't exactly have the same pickle as we had before. There is new, different nuances this time. The point as Lord Tumption says this time, is it's Parliament that needs to be called to account, which which justifies Brian's call for people to put their MPs on the spot and to praise them where necessary. Because the final slide for Lord Tumption's uh, talk that we'll put in this part of the news is that he says that the House of Commons has most remarkably abdicated the constitutional functions for which it is elected. It has let itself be reduced to the status of a radio phone-in programme. This is common to the Western world now. You know, parliamentarians are told they should be jolly glad that 20% of them get a chance to have a Zoom session uh, and put in a question. Um, there's very few parliaments in the Western world that have escaped this. But, you know, people often say, why does Brian bang on about members of parliament? They're, as David Ellis often says as well, they are the only way we have of scrutinising what government does. You know, a final point from me before we get too detailed. The executive the government in Britain, we're used to seeing them in Parliament because they're members of Parliament or in the older days, Lords. That's a Crown Convention. The Crown could theoretically appoint anyone, as they do in the United States or France, to be a minister of whatnot and to have absolute powers. The only check we have on that is parliamentary scrutiny, which is a, a golden thread running through Lord Sumption's talk. And however much or little you accept is codified constitutionally in Britain about the role of parliament, there's this perennial struggle, an inevitable struggle between ministers wanting to dispense with parliament because they have they act in the name of the crown anyway, and ministers submitting themselves to parliament. Lord Sumption comes down on the side of, well, we have a gentleman's agreement and we need to tighten it up. Uh, but that's, I'm afraid, is not even enough of a fight back. Uh, we need to insist on members of parliament uh, fulfilling their terms of office on pain of penalty, which is a, a, a point that the, the Bernician, as he calls himself, has made very strongly in his private prosecution of members of parliament, which together with the two cases I mentioned last week is one of the very important English legal cases right now, private prosecutions of MPs for failing to do what Lord Sumption has pointed out they should have been doing. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Um, perhaps we, we can say that obviously the Constitution is going to have greater and greater significance in, in being uh, the baseline to measure what's going on. And of course, we can see the attacks on the Constitution. And we can also say we fully recognise that the key part of our Constitution is based on matters to do with England. Well, let's have a look at the uh, quality of our MPs and we couldn't get any better than the Daily Mail reporting on Grenville Janna. So what have they got to say? Tony Blair admits nominating former MP uh, Grenville Janna for peerage despite knowing of child sex abuse claims against him. Now I know what common sense says to me about that situation uh, but let's look at what uh, Tony Blair had to say himself. In 1997, I would have known of the allegations made in 1991 in respect of Lord Janner by Frank Beck. As regards the nomination, I would expect such allegations to be considered by the uh, Political Honours Scrutiny Committee as part of that process. In the circumstances of Lord Janner's vigorous public denial of police investigation and charges not being brought, I do not believe the allegations would have been investigated further beyond confirming those facts. 
nor that I would have considered them a bar to the nomination. Now, Tony Blair is saying all of this in a report uh, to ICSA, the so-called independent child abuse inquiry, which has been censoring evidence uh, by simply refusing to take some or redacting in vast quantities other evidence to make sure it gives the government the result it wants to hear. So we shouldn't be surprised at Tony Blair's contribution to it, but this was the key part of his statement. He said, at this distance, I'm unable to specifically identify any particular failing or shortcoming that I was personally responsible for in my capacity as leader of the Labour Party or as Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, because he has no uh, shortcomings and no failings. He never has had a failing. No, and of course now we're, we're seeing the man for what it is. This is the narcissistic personality, yeah. very, very dangerous personality type. Narcissistic, can do no wrong, no good pointing a finger at him because he's, he's beyond that, go away. And of course, what is he demonstrating? That if you have a parliament that's prepared to cover up the abuse of children, it will cover up everything, including destruction of the constitution. Um, well, that's a similar topic, I suppose, but up to date now. The BBC finds Facebook failed to remove child porn. Facebook reports BBC to authorities, says Wired. Uh, and uh, well, this is quite interesting because there's, they are uh, saying that, uh, you know, the, the BBC has run an investigation into Facebook and they found that Facebook failed to remove child pornography. And well, there's two points to make here. First of all, why was the BBC interested in this in the first place? Because of course the BBC 100% behind uh, the principle of online harms, uh, the white paper that the government uh, produced last year, the forthcoming legislation, which is about to be announced in the not too distant future, uh, which is actually less to do with child porn and these kinds of issues and much more to do with disinformation, alleged disinformation uh, and shutting down any kind of uh, narrative which goes against the government's narrative. But one thing that struck me here was, is the BBC in any position to investigate anybody on the issue of child porn and, and paedophilia and child sex, uh, particularly in light of the fact that they're just about to make a puff piece on Jimmy Savile's life uh, that they announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, so they're going to make a drama about Jimmy Savile's life. Uh, apparently, they're going to do this absolutely uh, with the victims in mind. They're going to be very careful to make sure the victims are in mind when they uh, when they make this program. Well, that'll, that'll be interesting, Mike. Yes. Uh, and of course, the BBC absolutely 100% behind uh, the removal of statues, except when it's the, their own statue uh, on BBC Broadcasting House in London. Uh, which, if going back a few years now, the BBC, uh, the the Mail here, the headline was uh, BBC urged to remove sculpture of naked boy from outside broadcasting house because creator raped his daughters, uh, and they absolutely refused to remove this uh, this uh, statue. statue. Yeah, it is pretty unpleasant by Eric Gill, um, and uh, so they have absolutely no, they're in no position to criticise anybody on this issue at all. Um, and as we say, they absolutely were quite happy to get behind the, the Black Lives Matter. But what is uh, what is really behind this? Well, of course, it is the online harms forthcoming legislation based on the white paper that was uh, published by the government uh, at the end of last year. And I just want to remind everybody uh, of the list of harms that the government was talking about. So child sexual exploitation and abuse online, uh, terror uh, terrorist content online, uh, content illegally uploaded from prisons. Well, those first three are illegal already. You don't need any extra legislation uh, to deal with those. Uh, and the question is, how, how, what kind of prison regime is being run which allows uh, content illegally to be uploaded from prisons in the first place? Uh, another harm that they want to deal with in this legislation, they claim, uh, is the sale of opioids online. Um, but I think if we go back a few years we invaded a country, uh, Afghanistan, in order to make sure that there was a good supply of opioids available for sale online. Um, and uh, we were very successful at, at stopping or restarting rather the production of, of uh, opium uh, in that country. Afghanistan, of course, the largest producer of opium on the planet. Uh, but that's a harm that we've got to deal with, apparently. Cyberbullying, we've got to deal with that too. Uh, Self-harm and suicide, we've got to do, because that's a, that's a harm that we've got to deal with. Except the government doesn't give a damn about the people that are self-harming and committing suicide as a result of 
problems arising from the COVID-19 lockdown. And in fact, they're not even gathering statistics on it. So it's impossible to know what the scale of suicide as a result of COVID-19 lockdown is. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a harm that's got to be dealt with online. Uh, underage sharing of uh, sexual imagery. Well, again, I'm not sure that the government worries too much about this because, of course, we're starting sexual, ed sexual education for children at the age of seven or six in primary schools, um, which, of course, encourages the underage sharing of sexual imagery. But that's a harm that we've got to deal with in here. But now we get to the crux of it. Actually, it's about online disinformation, online manipulation uh, and online abuse of public figures. These are the three areas where they're particularly concerned and where they particularly want to legislate for. So would, would, uh, UK, uh, would UK call them analysis of uh, the clear spin of the government over figures to do with COVID? Would, would this come into this white paper, Mike? Uh, no, uh, that the, the white paper is to make sure that nobody challenges those figures. That's what is really going on here. Now, it hasn't gone away, okay? There hasn't been much mention of it in the last uh, few months, uh, but uh, there, there's a continuing stream of articles uh, this is uh, Julian Knight, who is the chair of the Culture Committee, Culture, uh, Digital Culture Media and Sport Committee in the in Parliament. Uh, people need protection against online harms now. He's claiming for he's claiming, uh, well, a step in the right direction as far as the government's concerned. Uh, others may disagree. Uh, comes with uh, with this because uh, they are now setting up an online safety. Centre of Excellence, Brian. So uh, this is brilliant. Twenty-nine million pounds going into this. Seven million pounds going into the online safety centre of ex uh, excellence itself, and the rest of the money going into research projects in Bristol, Bath, Newcastle, Nottingham, Surrey, and Lancaster. Um, these initiatives are part of an investment by UK Research and Innovation, uh, and include projects to test how immersive technology can improve people's education, and explore how the Internet of Things can benefit people's lives and improve their well-being. So you may well wonder what that has got to do with uh, with online safety. But anyway, the package includes seven million uh, for this new National Centre on Privacy, Harm Reduction, and Art adver uh, sorry Adversarial Influence. Uh, which they're calling Refrain, uh, and it's bringing together researchers from universities of Bristol, Edinburgh, Bath, King's College, London, and UCL. It's also going to work with industry, academics, and the voluntary sector to develop new technologies to help human moderators tackle the spread of online disinformation and identify harms linked to online targeting and manipulation. Uh, and it's going to develop a world-first privacy-enhancing technology test site to trial <laughs> new ways to boost data privacy. <laughs> and at and, that point, I, I couldn't couldn't hold the mirth in that yes. they're protecting us, of course. Trust us, we're protecting you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there we go. Uh, we'll keep an eye on, uh, of course, on what's going on with the forthcoming legislation and bring it to you when it, when it arrives. Um, but this is all about shutting down uh, discussion uh, online. Shutting down discussion. Um, well, I'm afraid it's going to get worse because um, the British media, press and media, has now got this to tell us. The Metro reporting that refusal to wear masks is linked to antisocial personality disorder. Uh, now, this was a fascinating article that were referred to a report which had apparently come out of Brazil. But as I read the Metro's article, I could not find source information. It just appeared to be comment on a report that the public wasn't excuse me, told about. So I took the opportunity to call Lucy Middleton and the Metro switchboard was kind enough to put me through to her this morning. So let's have a look at that conversation. Um, I said, why doesn't your report show the source of your headline claim? And Lucy said to me, I don't know what you're asking. Uh, so we continued the conversation. Uh, hopefully it will come up here. Um, uh, Lucy said there, 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 uh, well, there was a link, but you really need to email the editorial team. So I said, but you're the journalist, Lucy. Uh, she said, I don't know why you're calling my article rubbish. Why are you contacting me? To which I replied, I'd never said that the article was rubbish. I've just asked where the source evidence, the report is that you've based your story on. Um, upon. Um, I asked her if she knew about the physical risks of wearing masks long term. She said, I don't understand why you're asking me this. I said, do you wear a mask, Lucy? Well, click the, the phone went down. So that was a pretty short conversation. 
But nevertheless, poor Lucy, as a journalist, didn't understand the significance that she'd written an article where there was no factual evidence upon which she based the article, or certainly the public couldn't see it. She didn't know why I was calling. So she was a trifle concerned and a little bit hostile uh, when we asked her some questions about the safety of masks. Where did the story come from? Well, it appears to have originated from the Independent. Here's the Independent. Not wearing a mask is linked to antisocial traits, a study finds. Those who don't comply with COVID-19 containment measures were found to be, wait for it, more callous, hostile and deceitful. Uh, there we are. You're mentally ill if you don't wear a mask. Who wrote this? Well, we've no idea because this is another anonymous article. But uh, let's have a look at what uh, they said. Scientists in Brazil have linked resistance to COVID-19 safety measures, such as wearing a mask with antisocial personality traits. Their study was the first of its kind in Latin America and surveyed over 1,500 people aged 18 to 73. When profiles were analysed, two were identified, an antisocial pattern profile who were resistant to COVID-19 safety measures and an empathy pattern profile who were compliant. Well, that's convenient, Mike, isn't yes. it? Yes. Now, look, there's something in that uh, graphic there that you're showing which is cause for concern because increasingly in the mainstream press, there you see a number of words in red, and those are all hyperlinks, Brian. Yeah. But increasingly in the mainstream press, uh, the hyperlinks that you see are to a category within their own body of work. So the word scientists will link to the scientists, the science section of the, the independence website. Brazil will link to a Brazil section of the independence website. Uh, mask will link to a mask section of the independence website. And at no point will you get an external link to the actual source material. Well, I got to say that was true of the Metro, Mike, because the Metro didn't have any link at all. But in this one where it says their study, if you click on study, you could get through to it. Um, so let's uh, just have a look at the detail of the study. The antisocial antisocial profile was linked to higher scores in the personality questions related to callousness, deceitfulness, hostility and positivity irresponsibility, manipulativeness and risk-taking, antisocial traits which the study notes are typically present in people diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Uh, this group also had lower scores in effective resonance. So you don't want to do what the government says you need do even when it's dangerous to your physical health, as in wearing a mask, uh, you're mentally ill. Alex, I'm going to come back to you in two secs because that is the Soviet. But here's the report. This is where you need to go to. And I'm calling it a, a report by very, very naive uh, people, the independent, under, unbelievably naive to print it. But we've just got some young Brazilian psychologists presenting a paper which has now suddenly become evidence of mental illness in the British public. What an insult by the independents. People should stop buying that newspaper instantly. Uh, but what we managed to do was track down some of the young lovelies that produced this report. So here we are, we've got Gazella, we've, well, we've got two gazelles actually, and a, uh, a Fabiano and a Lucas. Uh, so these are the smiling, arrogant young psychologists who believe that their work has now determined that, uh, that if a member of the British public dares to challenge the government over safety issues and masks, um, they're mentally ill. Alex, this is the step. Um, from here, we go to putting people into the gulag. This is the psychiatric gulag that, of course, the Soviets specialised in. It's being built in UK in front of our eyes. Well, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the masterpieces on the uh, misuse of science and particularly psychiatry. The Soviet Union even had a word for the abuse of psychiatry to contain political dissidents called psychushka. There was also the, uh, I think he was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Andrei Sakharov, who got locked up, who talked about the same thing. You get entire new branches of science coming along to fit political requirements in a Marxist scheme, uh, Lysenkoism, for example, insisting that genetic uh, material could be perfected by man. Uh, there's a whole host of, of uh, risks in this area. But I would say, as a, an interested outsider to the exact sciences, 
that uh, over here on the continent they don't even call the likes of psychology and the social sciences sciences they categorize them with three letters of the greek alphabet and uh, alpha is the name they give to the humanities beta is the exact sciences anything with mathematical bases in it and uh, falsifiable uh, claims and then gamma is the new category which came up a hundred years ago of social and psychological sciences uh, the evidentiary base for these and for the medical application psychiatry of them is notoriously thin and notoriously liable to churn things that were de rigueur diagnoses of mental illness uh, half a century ago, such as homosexuality, are now so much the other way that it's almost uh, more normal than normal in psychiatrists' minds. Uh, so without knocking the entire edifice too much, I would say that psychiatry and the social sciences and psychology even more generally do have an extremely thin evidentiary base and are very liable uh, to have young, young researchers of the kind you, you talk about, Brian, simply saying uh, everyone knows this is true these days in it. Yeah, and I think we've, we've also got to, of course, remind people that if you follow the trail for the creation of social services, you're going to come back to the likes of Alice Webb through um, into the London um, School of Economics and other places and the Tavistock Institute. Mm -hmm. So some very dark arts at the background of that. But let's have a look at the independent and the editor and see what he's got to say for himself. Well, here he is, Christian uh, Broughton. How can he be the editor of a, news, a national newspaper? He looks about 25. Well, you've got to be careful, Mike. Okay. Is this, is this age? <laughs> They're all getting younger. Yeah. They're all getting younger. <laughs> so we'll give him a bit of ground. But here we are. There's still romance and a lot of ideals in journalism. And he suggests that automation is a way of buying back time for journalists to do more fun and exclusive stories. Well, I defended him there initially, but I won't for much longer because, of course, this is obviously a very immature young man who does not understand what the job of the media really is. Uh, but he goes on, the more slick we can make automation, 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 sorry, having a few problems there. Uh, the fewer people in the newsroom that are reporting basic stories that have interest to your readers, the better. The fewer people in your newsroom that are reporting basic stories that have interest to your readers, the better. Mm. So we're going to get rid of the people. He wants more machines. Um, he says the independent is still doing serious journalism and it's working. For example, we recently um, made a cash advance to one of our two Beirut-based journalists so he could go to Syria. So that's a quality newspaper, Mike. Wow. Wow. And um, if you want to know what, what Christian gets up to, well, he can, um, he can attend this uh, sort of thing. This is a panel at the Society of Editors. And it's nice to see that he's sitting next to Alison Gow. Facebook, oh dear, they were criticised by the BBC apparently for child porn, was that right? Yes. Oh dear. Well, he sat next to Alison Gow, Facebook head of news partnerships, and you say, this is a partnership. What is the partnership about? Well, clearly it's making sure that the British public don't get the right inform information. Um, okay, well, we'll just uh, briefly briefly finish with uh, antibodies uh, because, of course, there was a big study came out yesterday. This is the largest uh, COVID-19 antibody testing program uh, and it has found its, uh, published its findings on antibody response over time. Uh, so this is uh, Imperial College London, Ipsos Mori. Uh, lots of people receiving letters through the post from those two uh, wanting people to take part in studies, and this was one of them. Uh, 365,000 participants across England uh, took part in this one. Uh, and uh, they showed that antibody response over time varies depending on a person's age and symptoms. Uh, so let's just have a look at the uh, top level findings here. Uh, the proportion of people with uh, COVID-19 antibodies in England fell by 26.5% between 20th of June and 28th of September. In other words, from 6% of the population having antibodies to 4.4% of the population. Uh, while the number of people testing positive for antibodies declined gradually in the population regardless of employment type, the number of healthcare workers Tested, testing positive for antibodies didn't change over time, and they're suggesting that's because of increased exposure. Uh, and uh, there was a decline in people across all age groups, uh, the largest decline in the oldest age group. Um, and well, that should be pretty much obvious, but anyway, they felt the need to state it. The decline in people testing positive for antibodies was largest in those who do not report having had COVID-19 compared to those who reported that they previously tested positive for the virus. Well, 
It should be pretty clear what the reason for that was, because, of course, people that didn't report having had COVID-19 probably didn't know they'd had it. They were asymptomatic. They never had a test. Uh, and so, of course, the, the body's immune response wasn't as strong in them as it was with somebody that tested positive, perhaps. Um, OK, well, that's that's what they said. This is what the uh, the BBC said. This is their headline yesterday. Uh, COVID antibodies fall rapidly after infection. And of course, they focused very much on antibodies, uh, but the, they did have a couple of words in there regarding T cells, but not really very much, which is a bit unfortunate because, of course, it was only a few weeks ago, well, actually July, do apologize, July, that they were pushing this article, coronavirus immunity may be more widespread than test suggests. Uh, and this is what they had to say. People testing negative for coronavirus antibodies may still have some immunity, a study has suggested. For every person testing positive for antibodies, two were found to have specific T cells which identify and destroy infected cells. Uh, this was seen even in people who had mild or symptomless cases of COVID-19. But of course, they didn't really mention this in the most recent article about it. And we have mentioned this before, so I'll just briefly run this, uh, run through this. As a science article, T-cells found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. This one from the Nursing Times, health and care staff front of queue and game changer antibody test. But of course, no mention of T-cells. But this, uh, here's the thing about... Uh, about antibodies. It was understood for quite some time uh, that antibodies uh, were uh, declining over time. So it didn't require this latest report to, to identify that. So uh, they're saying here, virus-specific antibodies were detectable in 100% of patients two weeks after symptom onset, but uh, that patients produced variable levels of neutralizing antibodies, which reached a plateau two weeks after symptom onset and then declined in the majority of patients. Furthermore, we report that neutralizing antibodies were undetectable in 56% of asymptomatic carriers. So, and they produced a graph, which we've shown before, which absolutely showed uh, that antibodies were undetectable after a period of time. So this has been understood for quite some time, but suddenly it's become important again because Ipsos Mori has run a survey uh, and uh, with Imperial College, who of course are the people behind the doom and gloom stories. But here's, uh, here is the key point. Uh, importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive T cells in 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals, suggesting cross-reactive T cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, Oxford University understands this. Uh, here's Professor Sarah Gilbert. It's, impossible, it's possible we're underestimating the natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. There's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies but have developed a T-cell response. And also from Oxford University, Sir John Bell saying, uh, so there's probably background T-cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. Uh, those T-cells get a bit tired once you get beyond the age of 65 and may not be as effective at removing the virus. Uh, and uh, we have been warning for uh, weeks, if not months, uh, that this notion of antibodies being the key driver in immune response was going to be pushed by the mainstream press in order to justify not only vaccination, but the requirement to, to have booster shots uh, following the initial vaccination. And that indeed was exactly the message that was being sent out uh, on the BBC news last night. OK, thank you for that, Mike. Essentially, we're giving quite precise information now to challenge the line from the government over COVID. What do we hope that people will do with this information is to take it and put it in front of your MPs and put it in front of local um, officials in order to challenge what's going on. And of course, as uh, who was it, Lord Sumption said, basically, uh, people aren't doing enough. This is your opportunity to actually do something in a very simple way, send an email, uh, tweet, uh, make a call, visit in person, write a letter. All of these things do make a difference uh, because we are seeing people within the establishment now starting to get slightly wobbly about which side of the um, line they're on. So keep pushing. Alex, 10 seconds to finish. 
The much-esteemed councillor Brian Sylvester put in our chat box halfway through this news that members of parliament should be elected by proportional representation. I have to respectfully disagree, much as I think he has many excellent contributions, Councillor Sylvester. Uh, the reason is that uh, even in a, a fairly similar to Britain country in the continent like the Netherlands, people have completely lost the idea of seeing their MP, challenging their MP or holding their MP to account because the entire country became a single electoral district. There are other PR systems, I will acknowledge, but they're all predicated upon the idea that you get the people used to voting for an icon or at best read a manifesto and uh, tick the box that suits what that that uh, matches most closely what you want to hear. There's no concept in any PR system of holding the man or woman to account. And if you can't do that, you can't recall your members of parliament, privately prosecute them or any of the other wonderful things that we have in English common law. OK, and I'll just add to that that both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in past years, recent past years, have been boasting that they've been using Saul Alinsky doctrine in order uh, to execute their policies on the public. Uh, one of the things that Saul Alinsky said is make it personal if you want to get a response. And so we all say to our public today, take that bit of advice uh, from supposedly a very experienced and capable agitator who said, don't talk about the government, talk about the individual by name who is the person who is causing the problem. That is the way to get a reaction. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Friday, I think. Yes, indeed. indeed. <laughs> we'll leave that with a smile. It's yeah. all happening too fast. Yeah. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.